Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for $2.49 a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Say goodbye to the food police and hello to peace. Welcome to the Love Food Podcast, hosted by dietitian and food behavior expert, Julie Duffy Dillon. This authentically engineered series is in the form of a love letter, welcoming you to reconnect with food. Now pour a cup of coffee or a margarita and let's begin. Hi, and welcome to episode 184 of the Love Food Podcast. I am Julie Duffy Dillon, registered dietitian and partner on your food peace journey. I am so glad you're here. Thank you for connecting today. If you're a new Love Food listener, welcome. I am so glad you found me. And this episode is a bit different than the other episodes. Currently, I am off celebrating holidays. I celebrate a bunch in December, so I'm not doing as much recording. But what you're going to hear today is actually a rebroadcast of an interview that I did with Rebecca Goodman. She's a dietitian that has the podcast called Beyond the Food. And I'm going to be sharing the episode I did with her on my podcast. It's a podcast where I dive really deep into everything PCOS. We talk about the biggest myths, how diet cycling, how it kind of gets in the way of everything, what's to blame for the PCOS, and also my story to a non-diet approach with PCOS. I hope you find it helpful, especially if you are affected by the condition or you know someone who is. I hope it helps you to know that you don't have to diet if you have PCOS. And like I said, if you're new to the Love Food Podcast, just know this is not a typical episode. You will hear more typical episodes coming up starting January 1st. You know, January is International Dieting Month, so we need a lot of ammo to help fight back diet culture. In order to give you as much power as possible as you navigate the um, National Dieting Month, I want to know what you need from me. And the best way to do that is send me your Dear Food letter. What is a Dear Food letter? Well, it's the actual foundation of the Love Food podcast. It's where you can write a letter to food describing all of your ups and downs, the details to your complicated relationship. And then at the end of the episode, food writes back. And I really need your letters in order to make the ending of season four as best as it can be. I have some really great experts lined up. And so I need your letter in order to make it happen. Send your Dear Food letter over to lovefoodpodcast at gmail.com. Before we get to the episode, if you experience PCOS and you're looking for more tools to move away from diets, check out my course. I made it just for you. You can get to all the details at pcosandfoodpeace.com. All right, enough of all that. Let's get to the episode and my special conversation with Rachel Goodman from the Beyond the Food podcast. Hey guys, welcome to another episode. Today I have Julie Duffy Dillon with us. 
She is a registered dietitian, nutrition therapist, podcaster, author, and eating disorder specialist. She also specializes in helping women who struggle with PCOS move away from dieting and promote health in their life. Hi, Julie. Welcome. Hey, Rachel. Thanks for inviting me on. Of course, I am so. I've been following you for a while, and I'm so excited to have you on and share your wisdom. You know, since you specialize with PCOS, can you briefly explain to someone who's not familiar with the term or doesn't fully understand what is it and how common is it? For sure. So PCOS, also known as polycystic ovarian syndrome, is this endocrine disorder that starts in the brain, in the hypothalamus, and it has metabolic, reproductive, and psychological consequences to it. It's most known for its connection with... um, these polycystic ovaries, hence the name, but you actually don't have to have cysts on your ovaries in order to have PCOS, which is kind of funny. They need to change the name, but it's most known for its its reproductive kind of consequences. And it is the number one cause of ovulatory infertility, Um, but it also has this metabolic side to it where it promotes high insulin levels. It also... um, affects cholesterol and blood pressure. Um, It has a a really high rate of sleep disorders with it. And those are all connected to the metabolic side. Um, There's also this psychological kind of experience with PCOS that, um, and I say all these different things because um, PCOS is not something like strep throat where they can just like swab your throat and know if you have it or not. PCOS is literally this diagnosis of exclusion. Um, and then they kind of lump these things together. They're like, well, you may or may not have this or this or this. And, um, and so that's why I'm listing all these things because, um, most people don't know they have PCOS and they're experiencing it. And it is something that's passed down through families. And so there's, a genetic side to it, but there's also an environmental side to it. And you asked like, how common is it? And that's something that people can't seem to agree on, but it seems to be, it's either one in five or one in 10 um, of those who are assigned female at birth experience PCOS. So you'll see one in five or one in seven or one in 10 just depends on what people are feeling, I guess. (laughs) So I do find it to be super common. And um, as we're talking, I know someone listening who doesn't think they have it by the end, they're gonna be like, oh my gosh, that's totally me. Um, And there's a lot of power in knowing that information. So I hope that this conversation does help somebody who either doesn't know, or maybe they were told they may have it just to better know what to do. Yeah, that's, and it's super interesting. You said that you don't necessarily have to have those cysts. Mm-hmm. which I I did not know that because it could totally be missed as something mm-hmm. else if they don't have the cyst present and they're having all these symptoms and struggling with infertility and all that. And they have no idea why. Right. Wow. And you could have cysts on your ovaries and not have PCOS. Well, <laughs> so, yeah. So it, there's this um, criteria that um, I always say the name incorrectly. So I'm just going to like put that out there, but it's the Rotterdam criteria, I believe. And um, a person needs two out of the three of these criteria. And one of them is the cysts on the ovaries. The other one is a sign of hyperandrogenism, um, like um, facial hair or um, hair falling out on the head, um, some kind of sign that there's more androgens um, than that is typical. And then the other one is some kind of ovulatory thing going on, whether it's just painful periods or missed periods or heavy periods or um, unexplained something with periods. And so somebody just needs to have two out of three of those. So there ends up being different types of PCOS. And um, so there's lots of different ways that people show up to their doctor. And for a long time, people just thought like this kind of 
book, I'm using quotes, Tiger is someone who showed up who wasn't ovulating. They were in a larger body, had lots of facial hair. And um, that was, that was, and they had cysts on their ovaries, but that's not the only type. We know there's a number of different ways that people present. Yeah, that's very useful to know. So, you know, what is the biggest false belief that you find women with PCOS have in regard to their condition, their body, their eating habits? Like, Mm -hmm. what is that? So the biggest um, myth, I think, I don't even know what to call it, but like something that people just assume that they have to do with PCOS is they what, no matter what their body weight is, um, I find people are taught that they have to diet if they have PCOS, that that's the only way that they're going to be able to have children or qualify for fertility treatment or be able to have energy or you know control their cholesterol. And here's the thing that I know is that diets don't work for most people. So why would they work for PCOS? You know, that's right. like kind of what it comes back to. And, and, you know, the research that I've, I've been kind of taking a deeper dive into some PCOS research recently, just because newer guidelines were um, published in the last year. And so I was looking through some of the research in there that they use as references. And basically the PCOS research for diet, dieting long-term has the same type of typical outcomes as someone without PCOS. And so we know from the literature that people without PCOS, for most people, like they may like lose weight or improve their cholesterol or some kind of like marker for brief diets, but not like long-term when we look six months, one year, two years, three years out, that's when that starts to go down. And so people with PCOS then oftentimes my clients that I was seeing in the beginning of all this, they were like, well, I've tried diets forever and they aren't working, but I don't, but I think I have to do this, but it's not working. So what do I do? And, um, I've, found that after about 10 years, really trying to like study different ways and seeking out supervision from clinicians who were using more weight inclusive therapies, that there is a way to promote health with PCOS without dieting. And if anything, for most people, they'll find that that's going to actually help more long-term than dieting itself. But that's just not the traditional way of treating it. Like you won't see, you won't hear most doctors or most research um, suggesting that because weight loss is still the number one thing that's recommended for it. But in my like clinical experience doing this for mm-hmm. almost 20 years now, that is just not what I, I don't find that working long-term for people. So, um, and especially if I catch someone newly diagnosed with PCOS, I'd say like, Hey, um, what if you didn't diet at all? And like, you just had these other things that you could experiment with and see if that helps. And so maybe you wouldn't even have to go down that long roller coaster that so many people have said they wish they never went on, like they wish they never started to diet. So um, that's a really long answer to that question, but I feel like that is the biggest But mistake. it's thorough. Yeah, yeah it's thorough. Yeah. Yeah. I've thought a lot about <laughs> it. <laughs> it's a great answer. It's a great response. So we fully like get an understanding. Yeah, I thought it was so interesting that you shared with the study that you, that you looked at where people who were chronic dieters ended up with similar symptoms to people with PCOS, even they don't, even though they don't have PCOS. And so truly like the dieting cycle is not helping people without PCOS. It's definitely not going to help people with PCOS. Right. Right. And you know, what's uh, listening to you say that it reminded me of something else that I think is also a really big part of the PCOS experience that I wish was not is that so many people, whether they're told or it's just inferred that their PCOS is their fault. Like they, 
ate the wrong way or they weigh too much and that caused it to happen. And that without a doubt is not true. We know it has a genetic connection. It is passed down through families and um, there are some environmental connections to it, but it's not the cause of it. And the environmental side is more about when it's expressed and how and things like that. But um, a person didn't cause it and um, it's not their fault. I mean, I feel like that is one of the things I want everyone with PCOS to know, like, it's not your fault that you have this condition. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for two forty nine dollars a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Yeah, and truly helps to create a healthy relationship with food when you don't have Mm -hmm. all the self-blame and shame that you think you deserve when you don't. Like, it's Mm -hmm. genetic, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, And so how did you learn about intuitive eating and how did you go about incorporating into your practice specifically with women with PCOS? Like, what was that journey like? So um, I was practicing as a dietitian for about three years when I kind of came to this conclusion that I was not really well prepared to help people make change. Um, And in this point, like the first three years, most of my work was working in pediatrics. I had this really cool opportunity really early on, about six months in practicing as a dietitian on this pediatric team in this really big teaching hospital. So I got to see all these different things and um, which was awesome. You know, I didn't really know what I wanted to do as a dietitian, but this allowed me to have that space to kind of just explore and I ended up really connecting with um, this these pediatric subspecialists. So all the pediatricians who helped with people with either endocrinology or genetics or GI or you know just any of those specialists in pediatrics, I was their dietitian, and they just paged me whenever they needed me, and I would jump around the clinic all day long, and it was exhausting but super fun for this. I was like in my mid twenties at the time, so it was a perfect fit. Um, And one of the areas I worked the most in was in the endocrinology. And I got to work with this wonderful pediatric endocrinologist. Um, He was one of two in all the state of North Carolina where I was. And he saw a lot of people with PCOS. And I didn't really connect with it that much at that time. And at that point, I was really into helping kids lose weight. I mean, that's what I was asked to do. And what I was talking about earlier is I found out that I really wasn't prepared. I, I still thought I, I was like, well, I'm not actually helping people lose weight because either they're, if, if they come back, they gain or their weight, their weight stays the same. Um, and then if, but most of the time people just didn't come back. So I'm like, obviously I'm doing something wrong. Like maybe the first two or three people you could blame somebody, that person. But like after like a year of that, <laughs> like obviously it has something to do with me. You're um, saying the people, they would lose weight and then regain it and not come back? No, you know, I never really saw that with kids. What I would mostly see was kids' um, weight would just keep going up. and uh-huh. or, or maybe sometimes it would stay the same. But for the most part, I would give them a meal plan or recommendations to cut out this, that, or the other. And they would come back and their weight would be going up. 
and set it down. And so then we would try harder and uh, put it on a stricter meal plan and then weight would go up. And, um, and, and then a lot of times two people just stopped coming, which is another piece where I was like, Ooh, I wonder if I'm not doing this right because people aren't feeling safe enough to come back. Right. And so I, I learned about motivational interviewing and the endocrinologist that I was working with, he ended up being um, a PI on a study where he, um, was looking at motivational interviewing and helping kids and their family. And that brought me to counseling. I was like, Ooh, I like, I want to learn some more counseling. And I, I did a master's degree in counseling at that point. And as I finished it, I was like, I'm not going to be a dietitian anymore. I don't want to do this. Cause I don't really think I can help. And, um, but then the dietitian that I hired to take over my spot for grad school, her name's Alice Baker. She actually told me about intuitive eating. She's like, before you quit dietetics, will you read this book? Because I think it's Mm -hmm. more like what you're experiencing and what you need. And I didn't read it all of grad school, but then I finally read it. (laughs) And I was like, oh, these are the people that are like seeing it from my perspective, you know, um, and using more of a bigger picture, longer term approach. And um, it just so happens that um, I really got into working with eating disorders after grad school. And I didn't want to work with any medical conditions, including PCOS. But then I kept meeting people with PCOS, like it just with, with eating disorders. And, um, I felt so like, interesting. Sorry. Yeah. yeah. I'm just thinking it's so interesting that correlation that you found with eating disorders and PCOS. Yeah. It's really common to have them together. Um, the research is mixed on how much more likely it is, but, um, I've read, um, research that 60% of people with PCOS have binge eating disorder. Other ones find 86% of people with, and the, and a, um, gosh, I think I had 300 people in the study. 86% of the people in the study had at least one of the criteria for binge eating disorder. And that's just one eating wow. disorder. You know? why, do you, why do you think that is, by the way? That's so interesting. You know, it, it, I feel like it comes to, um, there's like a physiological reason. And then I also think there's what they're told to do to control the PCOS that causes it. Um, there's definitely hormonal, you know, PCOS, the whole part of PCOS is this hormonal kind of chaos um, that ends up happening where insulin levels are really high and testosterone levels are higher than they are for people who are born as are assigned female at birth. And so then those two things being higher, along with another one called cholecystokinin or CCK, those three being high end up making appetite more increased. And um, then when people are told, oh, you need to like either watch your weight or you need to lose weight. And the best way to do that is cutting out X, Y, Z. Um, well, then that just makes those like that hormones really harder because it makes it like torture basically, because the one thing that their body is wanting is more food, but yet um, they're treating it with less food. So then those things just get higher, go higher and higher basically. And so if my thing is, if people were not pushed to pursue weight loss or even just manage their weight, if they were taught like, Hey, like, let's make sure you're eating enough food and, um, and then also helping however we can with your hormones without restricting food. There's ways to do that, you know, really well. Then it helps the hormones come down. So then naturally food ends up being something that just sorts itself out. You know, it, it, there, there's no need to restrict. Um, and people will end up naturally craving less of certain things that kind of coincide with some of the diet recommendations, but it's not from a place of like, 
I'm going to restrict it while you have high insulin levels and make it feel like you're dying. You know, right? I don't yeah. have PCOS. It's hard enough as it is. Yes, it's hard enough as it exactly. So I don't have PCOS, and so I feel really privileged that my clients have taught me along the way, like certain words to capture the experience. But I've had people tell me that cutting out carbohydrates when insulin levels are high um, is like it's like a primal kind of need that's not being met. And so it'll literally feel like they're dying because every cell in their body is like craving specifically carbohydrates, but that's the one thing they told it to cut out. And um, so it'll, it'll be so distracting. And again, it's like this unmet primal need. So it'll feel like they're like dying. And um, so doing that and expecting people to practice food behaviors in a way like that's torture, I feel like is um, not okay. <laughs> and no. also it's not going to work, you know? Right. So right. it's not sustainable, even though like that's the cookie cutter model to get like quote unquote results. The, yes. res- the results are not real results if you can't sustain them. Yeah, right. Exactly. Yeah. And so I was, um, like I told you before, I t- I've been doing some yeah. deep dives and some research and um, there's a recommendation in the, um, let me pull out one of the names for it. So they had some like international evidence-based guidelines, these really big guidelines that um, have not been put out since 2011. They released um, new ones in 2018. And um, so much of it, and this is on PCOS, I'm sorry. Um, sometimes when I do this research, I'm all in my head. <laughs> <laughs> this research is for PCOS, you guys. PCOS. But anyway, so one of the big things in this this um, release of recommendations was on lifestyle management and the push for weight loss and maintaining a, quote, healthy weight um, with PCOS and through diet. And they didn't really specifically say a certain way, like you shouldn't, it didn't say like, oh, this macronutrient being lower is better than this one. It didn't, it said that they basically didn't have any recommendation like that, that had any clout besides um, lowering calorie intake. And one thing that we see in the general population is like, well, if you just lost five to 10% of your body weight, it would improve symptoms um, and help manage things like diabetes and blood pressure, blah, blah, blah. You know, so the same thing they were saying in the PCOS literature. And so I was reading where that came from, which is always so interesting. And, um, I don't know how comfortable you are with it, like saying certain calorie amounts on this podcast, but um, is it okay to name a, li- a few numbers or should I just keep I it? Think, I think so. I mean, okay. you're, it's, it's just to, pr- to discuss Prove a point. point. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. so this literature, it's, it called it um, long-term research, first of all, which is really funny. And it was a six-month trial. And they um, had the people with PCOS eat only a thousand calories and it was low fat as well, which oh to me gosh. as a dietitian, I'm like, wait, so they're starving. Like literally- I'm starving. hungry thinking about it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and they had no satiety. Cause I mean, like fat is what it gives us that, that like- Of course. Oomph, you know? Um, and that people who um, at, at the end of six months, that five to 10% of weight loss, which again- five to 10% weight loss with that level of starvation. I'm like, that, that's not okay. Cause I don't know how we can get all our vitamins and minerals and all that stuff. Right. A thousand calories. Um, that it helped with ovulation and some other markers, but they didn't follow up after that. And, mm-hmm. um, I know for a lot of people with PCOS that I work with, they actually eat well below that amount, which is to me, I just, 
like that makes me so sad um, or that amount and they don't get more weight loss than a kilo or two. So, you know, they may lose like two or five pounds and then it doesn't go down anymore, but doctors are still pushing them to lose more and more and more weight. And that is so sad to me, you know, um, it's getting in the way of them getting like fertility treatment oftentimes. And um, even though these researchers are like, Hey, lose 5% of the weight and that will be enough. No, like that. Cause 5% of like, I don't know, 200 pounds. What is that? 10 pounds, you know, we so, to do math now. Oh no. I know, I know. <laughs> um, we lie at our calculators as dietitians, but, uh, so that's 190. So if someone is 200 and then it's 190, is that doctor then be like, okay, now I approve you for IVF. Probably not. Like I don't right. I really see them requiring much more than that. And here's, here's the thing though. Um, I'm sure people are wondering, okay, so if the recommendation is weight loss and I can't lose weight, can I still get healthier outcomes without weight loss? I know that's yeah. a question that people are thinking like, For well, sure. then what, what are my other options? Yeah, because one thing I know to be true is that weight loss is not a behavior. So there's a lot of behaviors we can do that promotes health. It has nothing to do with weight loss. Because again, like we could eat a certain way and move our body in a certain way. Um, and some people will lose weight and some people won't. And I feel like that is the classic uh, PCOS experience, you know, is that, um, gosh, my friend and I went on Weight Watchers together and we went to the gym at the same time and she lost 20 pounds and I lost two, <laughs> you know? And, uh, right. Or I gained five. And that's part of, because of the hormonal stuff going on. And um, so what I do with my clients um, and what I do in my courses is I help people like, let's move away from dieting because something I really didn't mention yet is that part of long-term dieting, like a chronic dieter who's um, yo-yo dieted or what we sometimes say in research, like weight cycling, they've, they've done more weight cycling. That is something that's connected to high insulin levels, high triglycerides, high cholesterol, high blood pressure. It's also linked to depression, which people with PCOS already have a higher likelihood of having, having anyway. Um, so I want them to eat enough to like get off that kind of train, you know, so then they're not experiencing the side effects of the, um, mostly connected to um, chronic, the, the chronic pro-inflammatory state with PCOS. The chronic dieting just makes that even worse. So by eating enough, it helps just to bring that stuff down and make it more normal. But then from there, um, there's a couple like specific nutrition things that I often tell people to do from at the beginning um, to experiment with. And I say it like that because we know so little on PCOS management with nutrition, like so little. Um, and so much of it is focused on weight. And um, unfortunately, using weight studies or weight loss studies as causation and so instead of correlation. So it kind of gets stuck, right? Mm -hmm. um, but what, so there's things that I've kind of picked up along the way over the last 20 years that people with PCOS have told me have helped them and what hasn't. And um, do you want me to name a few things that people have told me that have helped that without focusing yeah, on Yeah, absolutely. And kind of wondering okay. how intuitive eating, like the, uh -huh. that, because here's the thing a lot of people will, will ask is that if you have a medical, medical condition like PCOS, where, you know, the whole car, car is like a very, 
very big mm. thing that's demonized mm. or what it is. That how do you make intuitive eating work when you have something like PCOS? So I, I would, would love, love to hear the tips from you and from yeah, your clients because um, I I definitely believe people with PCOS can do intuitive eating work. It just looks different. Um, and I would assume it's probably looks different for a lot of people for other medical conditions too, but intuitive eating is still pretty new. I mean, it was the mid nineties when Chibli and Rush wrote the book. So like, it's still kind of a newer thing, but, um, what I have found is when people have really high circulating insulin levels and they've been dieting for a long time, things like the constant intense carb cravings and the extreme fatigue are just so loud, um, that, it's hard to do any kind of connection with the body because that is just so distracting. And what I focus on first with clients is like, okay, let's make sure you're eating enough, whatever that's going to be, you know? Um, and, and I always kind of chuckle in my brain when I say that I recommend supplements from the get-go because I was one of those dietitians that was yeah. like so jaded yeah, with supplements I think because are. I was in... I know. Well, I was in my undergrad when the FDA decided to allow supplements to not be regulated. And so I can remember all the, my professors just being like, oh, I can't believe they're doing this. Um, And, but because of the chronic dieting and the hormonal like chaos that happens with PCOS ends up provoking this um, pro-inflammatory state, like I mentioned earlier. And what that ends up doing is depleting the body of a type of omega-3 called DHA. And so by helping clients to replete that, it does take about three to six months for supplements to start to like really um, help build that back up. But that's one of the first things I I recommend to people is like, let's make sure you're getting um, supplemental forms of omega-3. And there are vegan options if people are not um, wanting to use a fish oil type of supplement. And um, there's kind of, there's some things that you want to make sure you, because fish oil and omega-3 supplements are like the biggest like scams too, because mm-hmm. so many people take them. I know it's like consumer reports always report reports on how yeah. those are often fake. So make sure they're third party tested. And um, so that's something I recommend. And the other one is a B vitamin. Um, that's a secondary messenger called an um, Avocetol. And I said the brand name because there's only one brand right now that currently has the right ratio of inositols and is third-party tested. Um, if you know of one that is another brand, I'm all for it because I'm not a brand loyal kind of person. But um, taking the inositol supplement, what that does is it helps to lower insulin levels. And um, many people with PCOS take metformin, which is an insulin sensitizer that we often connect with diabetes. Um, people with PCOS have to take a lot of it, um, much more than most people with diabetes. And it ends up having some really intense GI side effects for a lot of people. Yeah. Uh, but it, <laughs> saying, yeah, because I know I had someone yeah. who started on metformin and she like just was in the bathroom, let's just say yeah, all yeah. day from it. So yeah. Mm-hmm. But yes. Yes. Um, so this B vitamin. Yeah. So the B vitamin, um, so these, uh, inositols, um, we have what they're finding so far in research is about, um, what I've read last is nine different types of inositols. And there's two in particular that there's either a defect or a deficiency in PCOS, which is really exciting. I think there's 80 plus studies now on inositols and, um, what is really exciting about it is it may eventually replace metformin. 
Um, some people wow. are thinking that'll eventually be the replacement. Unfortunately, those guidelines that were published last year that I was talking about, they still said that inositol was too experimental, which again, there were 80 studies. So I was surprised for them to say that. But again, I'm jaded. I'm like, well, I'm sure there were some drug companies that had their hands in this this paper. So maybe that's why, again, I know I shouldn't be so uh, negative about it. But anyway, um, so with that being said, the um, I want to tell you a little bit about the inositol because I think it's important to understand it. And since I don't have PCOS, when my body is eating food and um, our body releases insulin to help open the door to the cell to let the energy in, and um, I often think of insulin as like the doorman for the cell. And sometimes those gentlemen. The yeah. gentleman, <laughs> the gentleman of the cell. There you go. Um, and so the hinges on the uh, the door, if they when they get kind of stuck, um, the body releases these inositols, these secondary messengers, to be like a WD forty to go in there and um, help just open the door again. And so for those of us without PCOS or any kind of insulin resistance, that's what's going on. And there's something, again, it's either a defect or a deficiency in these secondary messengers. So with PCOS, that's not happening. So the, the insulin is trying to open the door. It can't. So the body releases more insulin and more insulin and more insulin, which insulin is like a growth hormone. So like it just makes us hungrier and it hungrier and hungrier, but it's, but restricting is not something that's going to make the insulin go down certainly long-term It may for like a little bit of time, but again, because we're not robots, we can't torture ourselves forever. Right. Um, you know, because doctors will be like, well, when when people cut that out, the, the the insulin levels go down. I'm like, yeah, of course, for like a month, but like eventually right. we can't starve How forever. long could you eat a thousand calories? I mean, you know. Well, we would call that anorexia, right? I mean, that's like. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, if, on paper, if I saw someone eating a thousand calories, I would say, oh, they have anorexia. And that's the sad part. I mean, really people with PCOS have been really practicing anorexia for a long time in order to have access to fertility treatment and just to feel like they can get healthcare. And they're like, when we eat only a thousand calories, our body is so, our brain rather is so preoccupied with food and um, has no energy and things like depression, anxiety get so much worse that it's just not okay that we shouldn't expect people to do that, you know? Right. Um, and I, I love that yeah. you're bringing other like tangible advice, yes. you know, because intuitive eating yeah. um, is, is amazing to like incorporate and learn, but some mm-hmm. of it is so like nuanced and just you need direct experience with. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And yes, work through and all of that, but here you're giving specific, you know, okay, there's supplements, like make sure yeah. you're getting these supplements and make sure you're eating enough. And yes, work through your relationship with food, but here's a starting place. Yeah. I think it's important to start with that. And a lot of people that are dietitians or health professionals, they like to start with the food first, like let's cut out this or do this first to see if that lowers insulin. And I don't like to do that because I'm like, well, why can't we help people feel better first and then help them sort out for them what works for them. And and that's a really big part of intuitive eating. I think a lot of us just think of intuitive eating as hunger and fullness, but that's only two of the 10 principles. You know, part of it is also, you know, feeling like in your body and making peace with it and um, feeling more permission to eat the foods around you, whatever those foods are. And um, so I think it's important to also recognize that part. So what I tell my clients is like, I'm doing intuitive eating work all along 
when, as soon as people are starting to work with me, they're, they're, I'm already doing that. It just won't sound like people probably expect. It may not, I may not be telling them to like eat when they're hungry, stop when they're full. Like they can do that if they want, but like, um, I'm not going to be really spending as much time on that because I have some tools that may actually help them feel better. And my job then is just to like, let a person tell me what works and what doesn't. And that's really, that is intuitive eating work, you know, is like, Hey, experiment with this, come back next time. Tell me if it worked or not. Um, besides those two things, those two supplements, the other thing that I've connected with that, um, I just, I really feel like people with PCOS probably just need more protein. I don't necessarily think they need to cut out carbs um, or change fat intake or follow some kind of regimen that has those kind of restrictions. But most people I've worked with, not all of them, but most people I work with with PCOS just need more protein. And some people need it throughout the whole day. And some people just need it at certain times a day. And Mm -hmm. um, that's another thing I start with pretty early on is like, what. um, experiment with that and see what that works like for you and let me know what you notice. And, um, along those same lines, like the next, like, like the, honestly, those three things are what I cover the first session with clients. And yeah. then after that, it's like, okay, how's your sleep? Let's see if we can help your sleep improve because sleep disorders are so common. And if people haven't been tested for a sleep disorder, I'm like, it's time to get tested for it. Yeah. Um, because that's something else that will just increase insulin levels and make people feel awful. And I don't want people to feel awful. You know, I want people to like feel more energized and anyone listening with PCOS, that's what I would encourage you to connect with. Like when you feel more energized during the day randomly to be like, okay, what, what was I just doing? You know, was, um, did I get a good amount of sleep last night? Um, or did I have a bigger breakfast or did I eat more fat at that breakfast? Uh, I don't know. Like there could be something in particular that was going on. And that's what you need to kind of note is just, it's more of a hindsight kind of work, but that'll give people the information they need to like, what's going to help their PCOS and not diet at the same time. And I think that's so helpful just to create an awareness of, oh, this is working. Wait, what did I do that's working so I yes. can do it again? Yes. And I think it's, Fantastic. What I love about the intuitive eating approach and what you shared is for the first thing you're doing is what can we add to improve mm-hmm. the quality of your life versus let's take away, let's take away, let's take away, which is not working in the long run. Okay. We can add supplements. We can add protein. Mm-hmm. After that, you know, how can we make your quality of life better? We can add sleep. It's all about adding to improve your life. For sure. Because I think when people are in that place with intuitive eating work and their insulin levels are really high, um, taking away anything is just going to make that worse. And um, like, it's going to feel worse. And, the, and, and some people can sit with that and, and withstand it for long enough to see some insulin drop, but again, but not for long. And um, if they're able to do it forever, they have to practice anorexia basically. And that's right. not, that's not definitely healthy. Not healthy. No. <laughs> yeah, so definitely like, not the way you want to go. And no. here, here's, here's the thing. So um, all this has, information has been so insightful and helpful. And I, I personally, so I'm Jewish Orthodox woman, and I know that a lot of my listeners are. And so, and I've met women who have PCOS, you know, and the, the, the pain that I see, especially um, the social pressure or like culture of getting married and then having kids soon after and, you know, multiple kids is the lifestyle and expectation. And so what, what do you, what advice do you have for someone who's living, living in this culture, 
cultural climate where they have this this pressure right to have kids or but they have PCOS mm-hmm. and they they they're getting comments from people you know i mean i don't think anyone means badly like everyone means well or whatever it is but it's it's just like acceptable like you know oh when you guys having kids or you know oh you guys are taking your time you don't know what someone and this is for everybody this is not just for jewish women but specifically when you're in an environment that that is the expectation like you're getting married at like in your 20s and the and having kids Mm -hmm. right away so what would your advice be to someone dealing with that Well, I'd give them lots of compassion for sure because, um, you know, I don't have PCOS, but I've experienced infertility for many years. And um, I don't know, I'm like, you don't mess with maternal desire. Like when we want to have a baby, we want to have a baby, we'll do anything to have a baby. And so then when there is outside pressure, it just makes it so hard. And PCOS has been uh, a condition that as I learn more about it, I see so much shame and stigma with it. And part of it is because people think they caused it. Um, and then, of course, when weight is tied into that, there's so much shame too. But mm-hmm. then when it, it comes into like ovaries and periods and like, you know, we don't talk about that stuff or like we are not supposed to talk about that stuff. And so um, it just makes it feel more and more shameful. And here's the thing about PCOS and fertility is that from what I'm gathering is as when people have the tools to get pregnant, um, not necessarily like the relationship, but like the tools like medication um, and access to the medication, um, they're able to get pregnant and it's, it's, it works, you know, but what ends up happening for so many people um, is that there is a barrier to accessing fertility treatment because of weight. Um, A lot of people are told they have to lose weight in order to get prescribed certain medications and especially IVF. And um, so I think that is, something that is a bigger conversation on like weight bias and and stigma and things that um, I don't have necessarily a solution on, but I just think it's important to name. And, um, you know, when, when we also look at someone having a hard time getting pregnant, but then finally does get pregnant with PCOS. um, I know for me, after my first child was born, I, gosh, she never slept ever. And um, I had um, another child that um, we actually adopted our second child. And um, he slept through the night before my older daughter did, <laughs> like wow. in, in real time. <laughs> so, um, you know, it was a good four years or so where I didn't get a whole night's sleep and I need sleep. And, and so oh, yeah. I, I say all this stuff because when we are in the beginning of an infant, like taking care of an infant, it's more stressful. It's hard. Our sleep's disrupted. Um, we're not, our self-care is in the toilet. You know, we're just not able to do as much for ourselves. And that part of the PCOS experience for so many people ends up making their PCOS um, more challenging to treat. Um, again, especially the sleep disturbance. So um, if there's, and I'm, this is where like, I am I'm not Jewish. So I'm like, I, you may need to help me understand like sure. is there a way to like help this part. Cause I'm like, part of me is like, well, if someone is getting the pressure to have more children closer together um, with PCOS, the thing that they would need in order to promote better ovulation is enough support around them and um, to help get enough sleep and, you know, just to be able to like have time to eat a hot meal at least once a day, you know? And, yeah. um, and so 
that's one part. I'm like, oh, I, if people had more support, they may find that physically they feel better. And when people's stress levels are lower, and when I say that, I'm, I don't necessarily mean like, because I, I remember being told like, you're just too stressed. That's why you're not getting pregnant. And I feel like that it was just so insulting. <laughs> like, because I was like, oh, what I wasn't stressed about getting pregnant. And then it just puts more self-blame. Like it just yes. feels like more self-blame. That's not helpful. No, it, is, it just makes you more stressed. But what I'm saying like stress, I really mean like, um, how much support overall you're getting and not necessarily, are you meditating? Are you like, are you getting access to, um, I don't know, enough exercise? It's just, it's just, uh, really something about like how much support you're getting that type of stress. And, um, so that's something that can help overall. And I, yeah, that's one of those things where like, there's not really a solution, but there, mm-hmm. is, there are so many people who experience this. And one of the um, coolest experiences I had is I worked with a grad student for a couple of years. Um, her name is Kimberly Singh, and, or Kimmy Singh, rather. And she um, is almost a dietitian. And she experiences PCOS. And one of the things that she taught me was like, hey, if you Google PCOS and and just let Google fill in the next step for you, you know, which is usually like the most common thing that people are searching. What almost what you'll see is PCOS and support. Like that's what people are needing more than like the recommendations for um, how to lose weight or how to do whatever. People are yearning for more support. So um, as much shame there is in the condition and reaching out to other people, if people can find a way to move past that part and connect with others who have PCOS, I find that to really help, um, again, from an outsider point of view, to feel just a little bit more at home in your body, which um, is a way then you can help navigate, okay, how can I best support my body and its fertility? Um, And along with that, I think about too, like advocating for the doctors that'll help you, you know, instead of just thinking about like, you just need to try harder or lose more weight. Um, I hope people cannot give up on like searching for doctors who will help them no matter what their body size is to be able to um, get access to the treatment they need. Yeah, Yeah, absolutely. And I think just the fact that hopefully this conversation is bringing awareness more to the Jewish community and like Mm -hmm. helping people understand both in the condition and in the body image aspect of it, that it's not as simple as restrict your calories. You know, like that's not the end all be all like grand magic solution that so many people mm-hmm. like to believe or have been led to believe. Um, so yeah, this conversation hopefully is part of that support. I hope so. Yeah. And, you know, and um, there's going to be someone listening who's like, well, I did that and it helped. <laughs> and so that, yeah. that's great. That's great. Um, and keep in mind that often losing weight or cutting out calories can improve ovulation for a lot of the research, but it doesn't necessarily improve um, birth rate, which is important, right? Um, And also research will say that it's important for people with PCOS to not be actively dieting while trying to get pregnant because that could have adverse outcomes. That's so interesting. Like on the one hand, they're saying lose weight, eat a thousand calories a day, but then it's also (laughs) important that you don't diet that just sounds so crazy to me, like how they don't yes. see the whole like 
conflict. So people with PCOS, you are not the crazy one. It's yeah, people making really. recommendations. <laughs> yeah. That's crazy. So for for the for the people who are listening who are struggling with PCOS or now suspecting that maybe this is what they have or know someone in their life that they that they, that has PCOS, what's your advice for someone who's struggling? Um, or maybe even any other medical condition, really, where, you know, what's a good place to start healing your relationship with food while also being able to address the medical condition aspect of it? If they're like just starting out, they're just learning about intuitive eating and they're done with like diets, like where's your good starting place? Because I know you mentioned supplements, which yes. is fantastic um, yeah. and making sure you're eating enough. But in terms of the relationship with food and filtering through that in order to have that gentle nutrition, you know, the Mm -hmm. supplements, the protein, where's a good place to start? So ideally, I would love for someone to meet with a dietitian who knows what they're doing with intuitive eating, you know, that really, really is doing it in a way that encourages unconditional permission to heal and to eat and to to do that work with you. And I appreciate not everyone has access to that. That's just not an option for people. Um, So when that's not an option, I um, will often tell people like, can you give yourself just three months to not diet? Just like for three months, move away from dieting and just notice what happens. Because in the beginning, it's going to be chaotic. It's going to be exciting, but it's also going to be really scary. But that kind of excitement and scariness does start to go away after just a few weeks. And um, your body, like listen to what your body is trying to tell you. And the cravings and the urge to eat, when you notice it, I hope people can identify it, especially if they do have PCOS, that that's their body trying to tell them something. It's not something to run away from. It is, it's definitely like an SOS from PCOS. Um, yeah, I love that. Yeah, it is. I mean, I will never, because clients, when I work with them for a while, like eventually I want my clients not to need me anymore. And so what I tell them, it's like when you feel that craving or that fatigue, like the, those are usually the two things that happen. When you feel that, that's a time to pause and say like, ooh, ooh I'm, I'm, something's going on. Either um, I need to do some better self-care or my PCOS because it's chronic, it just is getting worse. And I need to have a different way of treating it. So if you're just starting out, like I would encourage you to try and reframe some of your experiences in your body as this is my body trying to tell me something. And then- what foods, when you do eat them, feel energizing and which don't, you know, and, and that'll become more clear when a person's not dieting. It's not clear when right. a person's not eating enough because everything is just going to feel like torture and deprivation. Um, right. Like people will be like, I'm so full, but yet I'm still like craving carbohydrates. What's going on? <laughs> you know? And, yeah. And, uh, yeah. Like that's just going to keep happening while there's deprivation and, and high insulin levels. Yeah. And that's fantastic advice, I think, for those who are scared, right? Like Mm -hmm. if you don't also truly get into, like you said, so many people see it as hunger fullness or Mm -hmm. full permission. And then all they see is cakes and cookies and they freak out like, oh my God, cakes and cookies all day. Like that's not healthy. So if they're willing to dive deeper and give themselves that trial period, you can look Mm -hmm. at it as a trial period. Okay. Let me get my my feet in the water, you know, three months. Let me dig deeper. Let me learn more. Let me connect with the dietitian if I need to and give this time. And so that that's, I think, is super helpful advice. And thank you so much, Julie, for coming on and sharing your wisdom. I know that people are gonna, who have PCOS or may have PCOS or know people who have PCOS um, 
are going to get so much value from this. And if you do know, guys, if you know someone who has PCOS and is struggling, share this episode with them. You know, Julie, where can people find out more about you? You know, how you can help them? Where can they, where can they reach you, find you out? So the best place to go is my website. It's juliedillonrd.com. And from there, you can connect with, um, I have some online courses for people with PCOS. I also have a podcast called Love Food. And um, in particular, if you go to juliedillonrd.com slash PCOS, you'll come across a a tremendous amount of blog posts that that grad student, Kimmy Sang, wrote for me. That is, um, she used research that she was accumulating in her grad school days to write articles on um, weight in PCOS, inositol, metformin, depression, like all these different really important topics with PCOS. And so that that may be helpful um, if you're wanting to take a deeper dive. For sure. And I will include the links in the podcast description. So if you're listening, you just go click. It's right there for you. You don't have to like search it. Um, So thank you again, Julie, for coming on. This has been fantastic. It was so great. Great to chat. Thank you so much for asking me. So there you have it. Listener, I hoped you enjoyed the conversation that I had with Rachel Goodman, the host of Beyond the Food podcast. And If you are wanting a deeper dive into strategies to move away from diets while managing PCOS, check out the course I designed just for you. Get all the details at PCOSandfoodpeace.com. Throughout the month of December, I will be releasing episodes every week at least that are going to be helping your food peace journey. They aren't going to be your typical love food episodes, but they still are ones that I have crafted and have intended to help you while you're navigating this tumultuous time as we get ready for January and all the dieting that we're going to be hearing about. And remember, January 1st, that's when the regularly planned love food episodes are going to start up again. And so January 1st, be ready. I'm going to be sending you an episode that helps you just to feel more powerful as you're navigating this bumpy, bumpy month. If you enjoyed this episode of the Love Food Podcast, I would love it if you left a rating or view, subscribe or share an episode. Doing any of these acts of kindness really helps the show grow. And before I sign off, remember, I need your dear food letter. Send it over to lovefoodpodcast at gmail.com. All right. So until next time, take care. Thank you for listening. I am Julie Duffy Dillon, and this is a Love Food Podcast. Do you want access to more food peace? Jump on over to my website and join my email list. There, I share exclusive content that I don't share anywhere else. Get access to these tips and strategies by going to juliedillonrd.com forward slash sign up. And I look forward to seeing you here next week for another episode of the Love Food Podcast. Take care. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for two forty nine dollars a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.